This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And somebody handed me a helmet, a riot stick, and, and said, come on, we're going in the yard and get this thing back under control. And I can remember running down the stairs here thinking, this is really stupid. I could get killed out here, you know. And in fact, the inmate that started the fire uh, in the kitchen, I could see his hand through the window. It was dark at night, but I could see his hand. It was his left hand. He had a piece of paper that was on fire, and I could see him hold it out and drop it. When I was sitting on that wrestling mat with the body under my feet, and I was eating that sandwich and drinking this red Kool-Aid when the Ada County detectives came in and said, doesn't this bother you? And I said, I guess not. You know, <laughs> I was hungry. <laughs> we had a little riot in the dining room one time, Cap Tally got the name of Chocolate Slim because he was going out the window and somebody hit him in the rear end of the chocolate pudding. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, the special Disturbing Justice season. This is Anthony. And this is Skye, and we are here to talk about the 1952 riot, Horseshoes and Heavies. So our sources for this episode are Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com records, a New York Times article, Korean War, A Forgotten Conflict That Shaped the Modern World by Liam Stack, the articles Milestones, 1945 to 1952, the Immigration of Nationality Act of 1952, also called the McCarran-Walter Act, the Immigration Act of 1924, also called the Johnson-Reed Act, all from history.state.gov. Operation Ivy on nuclearweaponarchive.org, historyofvaccines.org, prison riots of 1952 from a project done by Michigan State University, history.com articles on the Korean War and the Cold War, and then Wikipedia articles on the Korean War, Cold War, McCarthyism, United Nations, Ivy Mike, 1952 United States presidential election, and 1952 United States presidential election in Idaho. So you might know where we're going with this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. So just a brief overview of the United States history here. 1952 was a year of conflict. Not only was the United States involved in two international conflicts, but citizens were in conflict with each other throughout the late 1940s and early 1950s. Prisons, a microcosm of larger society, were also ripe for conflict, with at least three state penitentiaries, including Idaho, experiencing major riots throughout the year. But don't worry, we'll get there. Let's talk about some larger national events throughout the year first. 1952 marked the second year of the Korean War, which involved South Korea and members of the United Nations fighting what they perceived as a spread of communism in the Korean Peninsula, taking a stand against North Korea and its allies, China and the Soviet Union. Major battles had taken place at the 38th parallel, the latitudinal line dividing North Korea from South Korea through June 1951. For the rest of 1951, as well as 1952, battles created very few gains for either side, resulting in a military stalemate. Peace talks began in 1952, but an armistice would not be reached until July 1953. By the time the conflict ended, 36,700 Americans had been killed with over 100,000 wounded, while the overall death toll was around 5 million. Around half were Korean civilians. The war decimated nearly 10% of Korea's pre-war population. Interestingly, unlike World War II in Vietnam, the American public was not constantly bombarded with information about the conflict. In December 1952, the commander of the American Legion, Louis K. 
Goff visited Boise during a nationwide tour, sharing his experience during a recent visit to Korea, speaking to 500 Boiseans at the Boise High School Auditorium. He advised Americans of a 10-point plan that would help the Americans and their allies defeat the communists in Korea, which included points such as present our enemy with our minimum terms of agreement for an honorable truce and blockade the China coast. But he also shared his experience with the American soldiers themselves. In a report from the Idaho Daily Statesman, quote, Goff told of his visits to military hospitals and said GIs deplore the ostrich attitude of the folks at home and resent the way the home fronters have shut themselves off from the Korean War, as reflected by the newspapers and letters that they receive. GIs are men in a hurry. They have their lives to live. They want to go home. We of the Legion believe that all right-thinking Americans are in a hurry to get the Korean War over, to meet the communist threat with courage and confidence, backed by adequate strength, not by timidity and fear. Goff was a guest of honor at a luncheon held at Hotel Boise, where the Boise High School ROTC choir sang. Other guests included high civilian and military officials of the area. One has to wonder if Americans were purposely burying their head in the sand, as Goff suggests, or if it was, in fact, censored by a larger entity. According to one New York Times article written by Liam Stack in 2018, coverage of the Korean War was purposefully censored throughout the 1950s, gaining the moniker the Forgotten War. Another war with major international implications was waging in 1952, the Cold War. In fact, the invasion of North Korean troops over the 38th parallel was considered the first main military action during the Cold War. The Cold War was one of the longest conflicts the United States was involved in, and yet one that ended in as equally a perplexing stalemate as did Korea or even the Vietnam War, which we will discuss in a few episodes. Following World War II, the world was essentially split into the Western world, led by the United States, and the Eastern world, led by the Soviet Union. For nearly 50 years, from 1947 to 1991, the two nations played what amounts to the largest game of chicken in the history of the world. According to the Office of National History at history.state.gov, 1952 was considered the last of the early Cold War years. During the early Cold War, the United Nations of which the U.S. was a founding member, was organized in facing resistance from the Soviet Union, who had rescinded on a number of wartime promises. The United States began building a Western alliance to combat what U.S. leaders perceived as the threat of communism, all the while restructuring its military and intelligence forces. These new forces would have significant influence moving forward. President Truman, dedicating the Legion's new capital headquarters, urges his fellow Legionnaires to fight an enemy at home, the character assassin and hate monger. Americanism is under attack by communism, at home and abroad. We are defending it against that attack, but Americanism is also under another kind of an attack. The growing practice of character assassination is already curbing free speech, and it is threatening all our other freedoms. For I know you have no way of telling when some unbounded accusation may be hurled at you, perhaps straight from the halls of Congress. That's not fair play. That's not Americanism. It's not the American way to slur the loyalty and besmirch the character of the innocent and the guilty alike. We don't want to injure innocent people. And yet the scurrilous work of the scandalmongers gravely threatens the whole idea of protection of the innocent in our country today. It's the job of all of us, of every American who loves his country and his freedom, to rise up and put a stop to this terrible business. This is one of the greatest challenges we face today. 
We've got to make a fight for our real 100% Americanism. The concern over communist influences infiltrating the United States was incredibly prevalent. Since the late 1940s, Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy began prosecuting any perceived communists or communist sympathizers in government, academics, labor, and entertainment. His dogged persistence catapulted the second Red Scare into a household phrase. And you can talk about communism as though it's something uh, 10,000 miles away. Mr. Jenkins, to answer your question, let me say it's right here with us now. If we, unless we, make sure that there is no infiltration of our government, then just as certain as you sit there, in the period of our lives, you will see a red world. Mr. Jenkins, anyone who has followed the communist conspiracy, even remotely, and who can add two and two, will tell you that there is no remote possibility of this war which we're in today, and it's a war, war which we've been losing, no remote possibility of this ending except by victory or by death for this civilization. In 1947, President Harry Truman signed Executive Order 9835 that initiated a program of loyalty reviews for federal employees with the enthusiastic encouragement of Joseph McCarthy. The program was designed by J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director. Equally as enthusiastic as McCarthy, Hoover ramped up investigations. Between 1947 and 1954, 109 separate investigations were conducted by the House Un-American Activities Committee, the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, and the Senate Permanent Committee on Investigations. Investigations. Hundreds were imprisoned and over 10,000 people lost their jobs, not only for perceived communism, but also for perceived homosexuality. The second Red Scare began to come to an end in 1954 when the U.S. Senate voted 66 to 22 to condemn McCarthy for, quote, conduct that tends to bring the Senate to dishonor and disrepute. The U.S. Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice Earl Warren, ruled against McCarthyism in a number of decisions, bringing the second Red Scare to an end once and for all. In the midst of such a massive surge in the fear of communism, there was an immigration reform in an attempt to keep the most undesirable ideologies out of the country. In 1924, Congress had passed the Immigration Act of 1924, which put massive quotas on immigrants based on national origin and completely excluded immigration from the Asiatic Bar Zone with only a very few exceptions, based mostly on the need for labor. Immigrants from Western European countries, especially Britain, France, and Germany, were excluded from the quotas. It was the first immigration act aimed specifically at one race. 28 years later, Democratic Senator Pat McCarran and Democratic Congressman Francis Walter, quote, expressed concerns that the United States could face communist infiltration through immigration and that, unassimilated aliens could threaten the foundations of American life. To these individuals, limited and selective immigration was the best way to ensure the preservation of national security and national interests. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, also known as the McCarran-Walter Act, masqueraded as a revision and reformation of the 1924 system, but it was a continuation and codification of the quota system. Western European countries remained excluded from following quotas while the act broke down the, quote, Asiatic barred zone. This move was almost purely symbolic, however, as the new law created an Asian quota based on race, meaning 
any immigrant with at least one Asian parent from anywhere in the world was counted in the generic Asian quota for the, quote, Asian Pacific Triangle. Asian immigration remained low even after 1952. Besides this, the act created a labor certification designed to prevent new immigrants from becoming unwanted competition for American laborers. However, the act set the stipulations that any immigrant with special skills or families already resident in the U.S. were given preference, as well as giving non-quota status to alien husbands of American citizens, both of which are still used today. Tensions throughout the Cold War was not enacted simply through policy. 1952 was a banner year for nuclear testing. After the use of atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 and the onset of the Cold War, the Soviets and the Americans began racing to see who could make the most, biggest, and most dangerous weapons first. On January 31, 1950, President Truman announced that the United States intended to create the first hydrogen bomb. Quote, it is part of my responsibility as a commander-in-chief of the armed forces to see to it that our country is able to defend itself against any possible aggressor. Accordingly, I have directed the AEC to continue its work on all forms of atomic weapons, including the so-called hydrogen or super bomb. This declaration was spurred on partially by the fact that the Soviet Union had tested their first fission bomb the previous fall. From this declaration came Operation Ivy, a large-scale operation designed to create a test series on the Pacific Proving Ground for late in 1952. After nearly a year of development, a date was set to test a new thermonuclear hydrogen weapon, November 1, 1952, at the test site in Inuitak, Marshall Islands. If you would like to know more about the scientific specifics of the hydrogen bomb, I recommend checking out Wikipedia and its cited sources. It is far too sciencey for at least my historian brain to fully and correctly understand. In total, 9,350 military and 2,300 civilian personnel were involved in preparing the bomb. Work was completed on October 31st, 1952, and within the hour, personnel were being evacuated in preparation for the blast. On November 1st, 1952, at 7.15 a.m., Ivy Mike, also called the Sausage, the world's first hydrogen bomb, was tested in the Inuak Atoll. It produced a yield of 10.4 megatons of TNT energy, powered mostly by fission. The process of nuclear reaction or radioactive decay, where the nucleus of an atom splits into two. A megaton is 1 million tons of TNT. In other words, Ivy Mike produced 10.4 million tons of energy. You have a grandstand seat here to one of the most momentous events in the history of science. In less than a minute, you will see the most powerful explosion ever witnessed by human eyes. The blast will come out of the horizon just about there. And this is the significance of the moment. This is the first full-scale test of a hydrogen device. If the reaction goes, we're in the thermonuclear era. For the sake of all of us, and for the sake of our country, I know that you join me in wishing this expedition well. It is now 30 seconds to zero time. Put on goggles or turn away. Do not remove goggles or face burst until 10 seconds after the first light. By comparison, the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, called Little Boy, produced 15,000 tons of TNT. Ivy Mike was nearly 700 times more powerful than Little Boy. In fact, it was more powerful than all the high explosives used in World War One and World War Two combined. Isn't that crazy? That's so wild. I was like doing this research and I was 
forgive the pun, my mind was blown. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I was like trying to explain to my dad, like, dad, I'm learning so much cool stuff. And he was like, what does this have to do with Idaho? And I was like, nothing, but isn't it cool? <laughs> cool and also terrifying <laughs> that this is, this is what we were doing in the 50s. The detection station on Bogon appears to be in good shape. No visible sign of plywood too. All test islands seem to be swept clean. Huge lab is completely gone. Nothing there but water and what appears to be a deep crater. Water dark blue in color. Nothing but water. An island completely erased. Mike was power. A kind of titanic energy released by stars. Upon detonation, the mushroom cloud climbed to 57,000 feet in 90 seconds. Within a minute, it reached 108,000 feet before reaching its climax at 120,000 feet. 30 minutes after the test, the mushroom cloud was 60 miles wide. But even the largest man-made explosion in the history of the world has little meaning unless we compare it to everyday items we understand. This is the largest fireball ever produced. At its maximum, it measures about three and one quarter miles in diameter. Compared to the skyline of New York, this means that with the Empire State Building as zero point, the Mike Fireball would extend downtown to Washington Square and uptown to Central Park. In other words, the Fireball alone would engulf about one quarter of the island of Manhattan. The tremendous upsurge of air from the detonation rapidly pushes up the Mike Cloud. Again, nothing of this height and width has ever before been witnessed. If the picture is stopped at this point in the cloud's growth, the height of the cloud is approximately 40,000 feet. This means that 32 Empire State buildings at 1,250 feet per building could be piled one on top of the other before they would attain the cloud's height at this time, roughly two minutes after zero. Some 10 minutes later, the cloud approaches its maximum. At this time, the mushroom portion of the cloud has pushed up to around 10 miles and spreads out along the base of the stratosphere to a width of about 100 miles while the stem itself is pushed upward deep into the stratosphere to a height of about 25 miles. Mike left high levels of radiation all over the atoll, almost completely obliterating the islet of Elujalab. Fifteen days later, the U.S. tested Ivy King, another fission bomb, on Runnet Island in the Inuitak Atoll. Though it was significantly less dangerous than Ivy Mike, Ivy King was the second hydrogen bomb test in the world. Though no nuclear weapon ever had to be used in the ways that the Soviet and American governments expected, nuclear testing was just another way that the Cold War had major international implications for 40 years. The release of Ivy Mike on November 1, 1952 came just days before the presidential election of 1952, which took place on November 4, 1952. Democratic incumbent Harry Truman had been a relatively unpopular president, criticized for his handling of the Korean War, the Cold War, and his supposedly soft treatment against Soviets and communists in the U.S. government. After Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver defeated Truman in the New Hampshire primary, Truman decided not to run for a second term. Democratic governor of Illinois Adlai Stevenson was selected as the presidential nominee at the Democratic National Convention, while General Dwight D. Eisenhower, popular for his leadership during World War II, was named the Republican nominee, choosing Richard Nixon as his running mate. 
Oh, some of those names seem awfully familiar. Huh. On election day in Idaho, perhaps unsurprisingly, Eisenhower won 65% of the vote with 180,707 votes. Stevenson won 35% of the votes in the state. 95,081 votes. A third-party candidate, Vincent Hallinan, running under the progressive ticket, won 466 votes, most of all in Kootenai County. Only two counties in Idaho went blue in the election, Clearwater County... With towns like Orofino and Pierce with 54% or 3,327 votes cast for Stevenson. And Lewis County. Towns like Nez Perce and Kamii with 56% or 2,280 votes cast for Stevenson. Eisenhower's overwhelming victory in Idaho mirrored his landslide victory in the rest of the country. He carried 39 of 48 states and 55.2% of the popular vote with 34,075,529 votes and 442 electoral college votes. Adlai Stevenson won only 27,375,090 votes, 89 electoral votes, and nine states, solely southern ones. This was before the South became almost strictly Republican territory following Lyndon Johnson's support of civil rights in the 1960s. As if the Korean War, the Cold War, McCarthyism, nuclear testing, and a presidential election wasn't enough, the 1950s was a banner decade for the cases of polio, both in the United States and in Idaho. I profiled the number of polio cases in Idaho in 1950 in episode 28 of the podcast, but 1952 was considered a much worse year than even 1950. An Idaho Daily Statesman article from December 26, 1952, stated that Idaho's death rate from polio was the highest in the state's history. It is important to remember that compared to current rates of disease and death from COVID, these numbers will seem like, no pun intended, small potatoes. Unlike COVID, however, polio took a much larger toll on young people, especially children, which caused much panic in parents, making it a disease many people wanted to eradicate as quickly as possible. In Idaho in 1952, 350 residents contracted polio while 19 of them died, bringing the fatality rate of polio in 1952 to 5.6%. Put another way, 57 of every 100,000 residents contracted the disease. By contrast to modern day, since COVID testing began in Idaho as of July 5, 2020, there have been 7,431 cases with 94 deaths. That is a death rate of roughly 1.3%. For polio, one in four of all victims in the state were in critical enough condition to require the use of an iron lung. Nationwide, things seemed a lot more serious. Over the entire United States, 57,628 cases of polio were reported, with over 21,000 causing temporary or permanent paralysis, so nearly half of those cases caused permanent paralysis. After such a large amount of cases reported, Jonas Salk, an American virologist, began to test the polio vaccine also in 1952 with the support of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. It would take another three years for the vaccine to become licensed, which led the way for the eradication of polio in the United States. Even if polio had affected mostly children through 1950 and 1951, by 1952, the demographic was starting to shift. According to the Idaho Daily Statesman, quote, in addition to the extreme virulence of this year's epidemic, the disease cut deeper into the adult age group with more than 25% of the patients reported to be over the age of 21. Just one example of this is found in an article from December 22, 1952, titled Rexburg Girl Succumbs to Polio on Honeymoon. From the article, quote, an Idaho girl on a honeymoon with her Korean War veteran husband died of bulbar polio. 
Victim of the disease was Mrs. W.D. Sutton, 25, the former Betty Jo Jepson. Mr. and Mrs. Sutton were married November 26 at Reno, Nevada, shortly after Sutton, a sergeant first class, arrived home from Korea. They had come here to visit Mrs. Sutton's parents. In fact, even healthy football players could contract the disease. From the AP in San Francisco, quote, Norm Stanley, one-time Stanford football great and now a player on the San Francisco 49ers, was admitted to Children's Hospital Friday on suspicion of polio. This morning, Dr. James V. Betts examined the 230-pound fullback at Palo Alto Hospital and rushed him to the hospital in San Francisco after preliminary tests indicate probably polio. Polio, much like COVID, was not a disease to trifle with, no matter the age. Within the prison population, it is possible that some inmates contracted polio. Perhaps some of the 383 cases that had to be hospitalized for medical treatment between 1951 and 1952. Though the Warden's Biennial Report from these years is one of the most detailed thus far, it does not specify what exactly those hospitalizations were for. Instead, the prison physician, G.H. Wall, commended the prison population for voluntarily donating 516 pints from 282 inmates of blood to the Red Cross. Seven inmates received major surgical operations outside of the prison at a Boise hospital, while nine received orthopedic treatments, including fracture reductions, dislocations, and even two finger amputations. Ooh, oh. that's my biggest fear. Ew. Unfortunately, according to the biannual report, the prison had six deaths, including two executions, Ernest Walrath and Troy Powell, who were executed on April 13, 1951. There were also 11 unsuccessful suicide attempts, hinting, unfortunately, at the depressing and difficult nature of the prison. However, not all of the prison was depressing. In fact, the 1950s saw a surge of rehabilitation and educational programs, all designed to help the inmates better themselves for their release. Between July 1, 1950 and June 30, 1952, the educational system within the prison listed total individual attendance at 588, with 24 students receiving educational equal to graduating from 8th grade and another 3 individuals receiving education equal to graduating from high school. The average daily attendance of school courses was 75 students. There were four main classes from which inmates could learn skills typically learned through high school, like civics, bookkeeping and accounting, typing 1 and typing 2, and English 1, 2, 3, and 4. If the inmates wanted more learning, there were 26 correspondence courses from which inmates could choose, including architecture, accounting, engineering, child psychology, social philosophy, mathematics, and even some unique courses like refrigeration, Catholic instruction, feeds and feeding, sign and show card writing, and descriptive astronomy. Inmates could even participate in Bible study and Bible correspondence courses if they wished. Throughout the education process, some inmates noticed that the educational materials they were given by the state of Idaho were almost literally elementary, with grown men forced to read sentences like, I see mama, or I see kitty. As the inmates stated, that was kid stuff. Instead, inmates developed their own curriculum in reading materials, quote, of easy learning, yet on the adult level and experience. The average man is able to learn the material in about four weeks and is then ready to read about the third or fourth grade level. Inmates could also learn first aid, from the standard instruction up to the level of instructor's courses. Inmates could also learn first aid, from the standard instruction up to the level of instructor's courses. Through all of this education, there was only one paid educational advisor, 
H.R. Wallace. To help aid in the teaching of fellow inmates, 45 unpaid inmate instructors were hired, which itself worked as a kind of rehabilitation, helping inmates learn how to teach a skill that would likely be very handy once they were released, if they chose to pursue it. Overall, about 16% of inmates spent their labor time in academic education programs in the prison. Another aspect of rehabilitation was the shop and on-the-job training within the prison. What the administration called the Department of Vocational Education and Instruction consisted of one building divided into nine shops and its corresponding equipment in which 10.58% of the inmates were employed. The shops were as follows. Auto mechanics, subdivided into body and fender repair and auto painting. Carpentry and cabinet work. Upholstery and furniture repair. Tinsmithing and sheet metal work. Welding and steel fabrication. Printing and multigraphing, where the prison magazine The Clock was printed. Machine shop. Plumbing shop. General construction operations. The biannual report stated two main purposes for having the vocational program. Quote, A, to furnish the inmate opportunities for learning a trade or vocation in which he is interested and for which he has an aptitude. To those men who have a trade or vocation, it offers opportunities for increasing their knowledge and skill. And B, require work habits, ideals, and attitudes necessary for securing and maintaining employment and advancement in his job. If these objectives are obtained, it can be expected that the individual will have a better chance of successful living upon his release. The administration was also able to interconnect vocational training and education with the vocational education department, as, according to the report, quote, the successful worker must possess not only skills necessary for efficiency, but also an understanding of the sciences, drawing, blueprint reading, and mathematics needed for actual use of the judgments and skills involved. The student, therefore, spends part of his preparation in the school where he studies the text pertaining to his particular vocation. Overall, there were 54 inmates who participated in the jobs and apprenticeships in the various shops, including printers, multigraph operators, multigraph stencil typists, mechanic apprentices, welders, blacksmiths, drill press operators, carpenter apprentices, and even a janitor. The administration worked hard to ensure that inmates were rehabilitated with as much education and as many vocational skills as possible to keep the recidivism rate of the penitentiary to a minimum. Vocational education made up about 5% of the inmate labor. Not all of the inmate labor was vocational or job training. Some was labor associated with simply being in prison. The Idaho State Penitentiary, and IDOC still is, home to the license plate factory, meaning every license plate made for vehicles in the state are made by Idaho inmates. Between 1948 and June 30, 1952, inmates made 2,280,904 license plates, as well as 384,340 licensed tabs, which indicates that a license plate is legally registered. Manufacturing made up nearly 9% of inmate labor. And license plates were not the only thing that inmates were producing. At the Eagle Island Prison Farm, formerly discussed in the previous episodes this season, animal products were manufactured at staggering rates. On average, 1,600 laying hens laid 1,200 eggs daily, on top of another 4,000 chickens, likely raised for meat, and 2,000 pullets, or young hens. They also raised 129 pigs for meat, 37 breeding hogs, 37 beef cattle, 48 dairy cows, 23 calves, and 157 rabbits. About 5.9% of the prison population worked in agriculture at the farms, mostly prison trustees during the 1951 and 1952 biennial. Overall, the total population in the biennial, ending on June 30, 1952, was 577. 
the highest population in the history of the prison up to that point. The majority of inmates were aged between 21 and 30, following closely by ages between 31 and 40. On the extremes of the age scale, there were three inmates between 14 and 15 years old and two inmates aged 66 to 70. Given the youth of the inmates, it makes sense that 268, almost exactly half of the 577 inmates, had an 8th grade education or less, with four of them claiming no education at all. Another 283 received some high school education, with 80 graduating from high school. The remaining 26 inmates got college education, with one inmate claiming 17 years of schooling. 169 inmates were single, 200 were married, 154 were divorced, 39 were separated, and 15 were widowers. Once again, unsurprisingly, nearly all of them were white. 537 to be exact. 19 were black, 14 were labeled red, 4 Mexican, and 3 yellow. Which again, those are not our terms. Those yeah. are those are 52 terms. Though 328 of the inmates were incarcerated for their first conviction and 111 on their second, two inmates were serving their eighth, one was serving their ninth, wow. and one was even serving his tenth sentence. 230 had a 14-year sentence, usually for forgery and money-related charges, and 155 had shorter five-year sentences. The next highest amount of inmates, 92, were serving 15-year sentences, 22 were serving 10 years, and 18 serving life. Two were sentenced to death, again likely Powell and Walrath, executed in early 1951. Unlike the previous populations we have discussed so far, the 1951 to 1952 biennial sentences included some unusual ones. Two years and a $500 fine to be paid $2 a day, just one of them, indeterminate and may extend to life or commuted to five years, two of those, and a $1,000 fine to be served at the rate of one day for every $2 of unpaid balance. And there's just one of those. 381 inmates had served previous sentences in federal penitentiary, U.S. disciplinary barracks, or other state penitentiaries, as well as 133 inmates who spent time in industrial schools and reformatories as juveniles. The biennial also included more crimes and charges than years we've previously discussed. While the majority of the crimes were more common crimes like forgery, issuing a check without funds, grand larceny, and burglary in the first degree, some charges that we have not seen in 1910 or 1935 reports include drunken driving, five, escape from jail, 18, keeping false account for county, one, infamous crime against nature, five, misuse of money by public officer, one. Other more egregious charges included 50 inmates in for a number of several different sexual crimes, including sexual crimes against minors, demonstrating that even if some crimes were as innocuous like writing checks without funds, many inmates were dangerous with dangerous intentions. Between 1951 and 1952, nine women entered the women's ward, in addition to the six that had entered before then. Of those 15, seven were money-related, including forgery, insufficient funds check, and one woman who was in for both at the same time. And embezzlement. Two women in for involuntary manslaughter. Two for burglary. First and second degree. One for robbery. One for assault with a deadly weapon. And three for murder. First and second degree. The highest population in the women's ward, if Sky's math is correct... And I would not trust that skill very much. ...was about 12 women, making the ward almost completely full. 
1953, the ward would actually become overcrowded, with 18 women entering and being released sometime in the year or serving beyond 1953. Inmates were convicted in 41 of 44 Idaho counties, with the exception being Adams, Camas, and Clark counties. 75 inmates came from Ada County, 72 came from Twin Falls County, and 59 from Canyon County. Only 135 inmates were born in Idaho. 40 inmates, the next highest amount, claimed a Missouri nativity, followed by Washington State with 36, Texas with 29, Oregon with 26, and Oklahoma with 25. 44 of the 48 states were represented. The only four states that did not have an inmate who claimed nativity there were Connecticut, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Vermont. There were also nine foreign-born inmates from four different countries. Canada. Six. Estonia. One. Russia. One. And Scotland. One. Much like what we've seen so far, the 1951 and 1952 biennial report lists 154 different occupations, whereas the previous biennials we've discussed have not listed more than 50. Because inmates self-reported their occupations and the years following World War II led to major post-war economic boom, there were many different potential jobs in previous years. The most common jobs of the inmates in 1952 were farm laborer, 76, common laborer, 57, truck driver, 53, Cook, 36, and Farmer, 27. Four women listed their occupation as housewife. Other common industries included mechanics, food, which was things like cooks, bakers, waiters and waitresses, or fry cooks, and construction. This report also allowed for inmates to report more than one occupation, demonstrating how common it was for blue-collar workers to have to work several jobs to provide for themselves and their families. About 32 inmates listed more than one job upon their intake. Here are some of the more unique occupations found in the report. Bowling alley operator. Efficiency expert in oil field. Hod carrier. And this usually referred to a construction worker who moved construction materials in a special kind of construction box. Linoleum layer. Optical instrument repairman. Rodeo contestant. Tree surgeon. Casino clerk and salesman. Wood hauler. Leather worker. And nightclub operator. Anthony, which of those do you think you would be? Uh, probably the nightclub operator. <laughs> mm, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Upon their intake, all inmates were asked to declare a religious denomination. Though 37 declared no choice of religion, all but one Jewish inmate declared themselves part of a Christian religion. 107 claimed Protestantism, 95 were Latter-day Saints or Mormons, 83 were Catholic, and 65 were Baptist. Most major Christian denominations were represented, including Lutheran, Christian Science, Presbyterian, Episcopal, and even Mennonite. In 1952, Four House on the west side of the prison campus was in the process of being built. Though the construction of this cell house was a different process than the previous cell houses the inmates built, the prison still used inmate labor to finish the project. According to an Idaho Daily Statesman article from November 13, 1951, inmates helped create pipes and fabricate steel for the project. The prison leased its sawmill for the project and had inmates do the cabinet work, electrical work, plumbing, and plastering. Warden Claps said of the process, quote, This is a program that pays two ways. We not only save money in construction, but we rehabilitate our prisoners and teach them trades on the job. The prison was able to get about $1 million worth of work for only about $315,000, using about 29 inmates per day on the project. The fact that Four House was in the middle of construction will play an important role in the 1952 riot. 
There was other construction also taking place out in Tuyard, though the report does not specify what was being constructed out there. It is important to note that since the area where Four House was being built often doubled as a recreational area, and also to ensure inmates did the best work possible without any distractions, all recreational programs were put on hold while the building was under construction. Leading up to the 1952 riot, conflicted existed not only across the country's general population, but also within the nation's prison system. In 1952, the state prison of Southern Michigan in Jackson, Michigan, was the largest prison in the world, run by Warden Julian Frisbee. The following account was taken from a Michigan State University online exhibit called States of Incarceration, Michigan. On April 20th, 1952, an unknown inmate managed to get prison keys from a new guard. Using these keys, he made his way to cell block 15, where maximum security and mentally ill inmates were kept. He let out two fellow inmates, Earl Ward and Jack Hyatt, who would become leaders of the riot. Ward and Hyatt then released 200 other prisoners and held block 15 guards hostage. From Ward and Frisbee, Ward and Hyatt requested the presence of a journalist throughout the riot. Ward, who became the spokesperson, said that the uprising stemmed from, quote, brutality from inmate nurses in the prison mental hospital, as well as from bad food and poor medical care. By the next morning, Monday, April 21st, the discontent and rioting had spread from Block 15 to the general population. Ward and Frisbee decided to treat the events in Block 15 like an isolated incident and allowed the rest of the inmates out of their cells for breakfast as usual. One half of the population, the north side, ate without any issues. During the south side's breakfast, however, someone had put salt in the coffee, leading inmates to yell arsenic and storming into the yard. The prison descended into chaos with attacks on guards, arson, theft, and destruction of property. Guards were rounded up as hostages and taken to Block 15, while other inmates took beef from the kitchen and barbecued it up in the yard, giving enough food to the rioters in Block 15 to last several weeks. Prison officials called in the Michigan State Police and together were able to take control of the prison again. Negotiations would take place over the next few days, mostly between Ward and Vernon Fox, deputy warden for the Department of Individual Treatment. On April 24th, Michigan Governor G. Menon Williams and prison officials agreed to 10 demands from the inmates. Some demands included remodeling cell block 15, access to leisure activities, removal of restraint equipment, no retaliation from the prison administration, and the creation of an inmate advisory council. The Michigan State Prison Riot of 1952 resulted in the death of one inmate and wounding of several inmates and guards. Property damage from the riot cost $2.5 million. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. Only days before the Michigan riots, on April 16, 1952, convicts at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton, New Jersey, barricaded themselves in the prison print shop and took four employees hostage in order to get their demands. Calling themselves the scum of society, the convicts rioted, demanding an investigation into prison conditions, citing bad food, sanitation, bedding, and asking for a reformation of the rehabilitation program and parole procedures. 231 rioters surrendered after 113 hours, or almost five days. According to a United Press article that appeared in the Idaho Daily Statesman, quote, they gave up only after winning assurance an impartial investigation would be made of the state parole board, but lost another demand that they go unpunished for the riot. 
About a month later, on the first week of May 1952, Warden Lou Clapp attended a conference of North Central States wardens held in Butte, Montana. According to an article published in the Idaho Daily Statesman, Clapp was less than impressed by the recent riots and appalled by the reactions of the respective wardens. Quote, the North Central States wardens were also stunned by the news that an assistant warden of the Michigan prison had congratulated the ringleaders of the outbreak for their parts in the riots. Clapp believed that the Michigan riot in particular was greatly mishandled. Quote, there isn't a prison in the world that doesn't have a possibility of such riots, he said, but we must maintain discipline. Wardens of the North Central States condemned handling of the recent riots and opposed, quote, so-called professional reformers who have little, if any, practical experience in prison work, but are attempting to foist untried methods upon wardens who have many years training. At the end of the conference, the wardens passed a resolution that, quote, there should be no compromise with rebellious prisoners. This season of Behind Gray Walls, Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit, were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We would like to thank them for their generous support. The second thing that was so outstanding about Luke Clapp to me was the fact of the way he handled riots and disturbances out there. You have to move fast. And he did. I wasn't there in the 1952 riot, but the inmates pretty well had control of the yard. So he called in people from all over. I was on my way back to back east, I was listening to it on the radio. I saw police cars here from over Glens Ferry, bound home, heading in Fort Boise. I knew this going in there, I heard some buildings were on fire. Little did Warden Lou Clapp know that his resolve towards this resolution would be tested within days of this conference. On May 6th, a group of inmates were repairing the horseshoe field using scrap from the Forehouse construction project. Because recreation programs were on hold, and because they were using material from the project, an officer demanded that they stop using the materials. Inmates complained as they claimed horseshoes was their only form of recreation and demanded to see Warden Clapp, who recommended that they appoint an inmate grievance committee. They did, but Clapp didn't believe the first elected committee represented the entire prison population. Instead, the next day he held an election and a four-man committee was elected to handle all inmate grievances with the warden. All parties involved agreed to meet once a month to discuss any and all complaints and grievances. Now, let's get to know our four-man committee a little bit. However, one of the members is currently unknown, so we'll only really be getting to know three instead. The first number was number 7,000, Boyd Ellis Anderson. Boyd was born in Cascade, Montana, just outside of Great Falls, on February 24, 1925, to Ether and Helen Anderson. Though in 1954, Idaho newspapers claimed that he was a member of the Shoshone tribe, there are no records to corroborate this claim, nor does he nor any of prison officials make a note of this on his intake. He was the oldest of seven children, as of the 1940 census, with three brothers and two sisters. Despite this, he stated that he had poor childhood opportunities. He claimed that he left home at the age of 13 to work, but the 1940 census has him living with his parents at the age of 15. At some point between 1940 and 1943, his parents divorced, likely contributing to his troublesome nature, and he purportedly spent some time in an industrial school in Montana. He enrolled for the draft and trained for the Army during World War II, but was discharged after only three months after his arrest in Great Falls, Montana, when he was just 18 years old. 
He was sentenced to 10 years at the Montana State Prison in Deer Lodge, Montana, for grand larceny after stealing two horses from a man named Charles Marks. On January 24, 1946, Boyd escaped from Deer Lodge with another convict named Joe Lavenger, Mm -hmm. fleeing from the state wood camp where they worked as trustees. A week after his escape, on January 31st, Boyd was in Wallace, Idaho, when Officer John C. Ferris caught him trying to break into a grocery store. Surprised and fearing the consequences, Anderson first beat Ferris with the butt of his gun and then stabbed him 15 times, one of the wounds nicking the officer's heart. He supposedly threw the knife in an alley, but no weapon was ever discovered. An hour after the slaying, police caught up to Anderson and a firefight ensued. Anderson taking four bullet wounds in the process. Anderson was charged with murder in the first degree and received a life sentence. The second member of the Inmate Grievance Committee was number 7967, Donald Gray Williams. Born in Los Angeles, California on March 25, 1915, Donald was the third of five children born to James and Blanche Williams. By the time he was four years old, the family relocated to Las Vegas, Nevada. Between 1929 and 1930, he spent time at the Nevada State Industrial School in Elko for delinquency. However, he shaped up, attending Las Vegas High School through ninth grade. He dropped out of school because of his father's death in 1936, having to go to work to help support the family. However, he was soon arrested in 1936 for grand and larceny, serving a sentence at the Nevada State Penitentiary in Carson City through 1937, saying, quote, I got mixed up with another fellow's automobile. <laughs> yeah, I bet you did, buddy. <laughs> Being a bit of a transient after his release, Donald made his way to Idaho by 1945. He made headlines in 1946 when he walked into Frank's loan office on 803 Main Street in Boise on September 30th, 1946, and held up the store. He asked the manager, Herman Zuckerman, to show him a gun, a 38 caliber. He then asked to examine two shells for the gun, slipping them into the gun's clip, putting the clip in the gun, and telling Zuckerman, stick him up. Which I just feel like, as the store owner, surely you would be like, I'm going to take the gun while you look at the bullets. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That's It's easy for me to say it's not 1945 anymore. I know. It's like, oh, this seems like a trustworthy yeah, fellow. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to hand him this. <laughs> let him <laughs> load this gun. During the process of the crime, the clerk of the store, Myrtle Brandle, whispered to a customer that they were experiencing a robbery, at which time the customer exited the store and found patrolman Rex Walter. Though Donald got away with $585, he was arrested by Walters on the corner of 8th and Main. He was charged with armed robbery and sentenced to 5 to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. In 1949, he was released on parole but soon got mixed up with the wrong friend, Merle Adkins. On January 22, 1950, Donald and Merle walked into the Pearl Grocery Store in Boise and held up the owner, C.C. Ramsey, at gunpoint, taking $700 in cash. Donald was charged with robbery as a persistent violator, to which he pleaded not guilty, instead pleading guilty to another robbery charge, entering the penitentiary with a new inmate number and a 20-year sentence. The third member of the committee was number 8286, Frank Phillips. An African-American born in Muskegee, Oklahoma on December 26, 1912, Frank lived with his grandparents, Frank and Martha Pack, from a young age. In 1929, he spent some time at the Oklahoma State Reformatory for grand larceny, and after a year was transferred to the state penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma. Two years later, he served two sentences for burglary and assault with intent to commit murder, three years on each count running consecutively. 
1939, he was serving in the U.S. penitentiary at Leavenworth for violating the Dyer Act, a federal law prohibiting the transportation of stolen cars over state lines. He was released in 1941, his final release subject to him living up to his parole, which was granted in 1943. He claimed that he joined the Army in 1941, serving before receiving an honorable discharge in 1945 at Fort Honcha, Arizona. The Army, however, claimed not to have any record of his service. After his discharge, he took a job at the Union Pacific Railroad, finally ending up in Idaho in 1951, where he took jobs in lounges and clubs as a musician. Hey. Hey. Cool. On the evening of July 18th, 1951, Frank and another African-American man, whose name is censored in the prison records, were out drinking in Boise. The accomplice, the accomplice stole a Ford car off the street, and together they drove to Nampa, where the accomplice stated that he had some clothes. The police arrested Frank and the accomplice the next day in Nampa, charging both men with grand larceny. For reasons unknown to Frank, the accomplice was released after spending four days in jail, and charges against him were dropped. Frank was arraigned on July 27, 1951, and pleaded guilty. On October 19th, he was sentenced to 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. A fourth major player in the saga is Warden Lou Clapp. However, Anthony will be covering Warden Clapp on Stool Pigeon Saturday, so stay tuned. On the morning of May 8, 1952, the day after Boyd, Don, Frank, and our other unknown inmate were elected, the Inmate Grievance Committee meets with the inmates, taking all their grievances into consideration. In the afternoon, the Grievance Committee meets with Warden Clapp and the Board of Corrections. Of the complaints, Clapp agrees to move daily supper from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m., to move the horseshoe field to a new area to allow the current field to be used for handball, and approves the establishment of a baseball field in two-yard. Clapp further states that he will hold a monthly staff meeting to keep staff up to date with new prison policies to avoid further incidents. Clapp and the Grievance Committee meet again the next day. During the two-and-a-half-hour meeting, an inmate who was put in solitary confinement, Siberia, for leaving food on his plate is brought into the meeting. He explains that the officer who locked him up did not allow him to explain the reasons why he hadn't finished all of the food. There were pin feathers in the skin of the turkey wing he was given. A Grievance Committee member who worked in the dining hall admitted that they processed, quote, so many birds at one time it's almost impossible to get all the pin feathers out before cooking them. They also discuss the bread and water diet given in solitary. Clapp promises to investigate each individual case and lessening the amount of time a man was only allowed bread and water, retaining it as a punishment for only severe cases. He then permits the grievance committee to publish the meeting results to distribute to the rest of the prison population. A few days later, an unnamed prison guard, the same one who had forced inmates to stop working on the horseshoe field, resigned. He stated that he did not wish to continue working at the penitentiary in a strained atmosphere, constantly feeling resentment from the prisoners. It seemed that the resentment toward him may not have been unfounded. His name apparently had been mentioned several times during grievance committee meetings as a central figure to the unrest that had been brewing over the previous days. For the next 12 days, all seemed to go well. However, Ward and Clapp could sense that tensions were starting to build until things exploded on May 24, 1952. Breakfast was served without incident, and around 8 a.m., about 109 inmates were sent to Two Yard to start work. They would remain out of the melee. At 11 a.m., Captain Gilbert Talley locked up four men in Siberia. Number 7256, Merle Roxy Kirby. Number 8218, Donald Leroy 
Schoonover, number 7616 Horace Everett Munger, and number 7557 Robert K. Merland. Fellow inmates seemed to believe that there was no reason for this lockup, or, at the very least, officials had not made the reason for the lockup clear. Clapp and Talley claimed these four were, quote, challenging the authority of the recently established Prison Grievance Committee. Prisoners working in the shirt factory, led by number 7616 James Samuel Miller and, quote, other unknown grousers, began a riot. Clapp, sensing the unrest, immediately called all the guards out of the yard as an alarm was raised. One unnamed guard was on his way out when he was stopped by a group of inmates who took his keys and his club, threatening to hold him hostage. The guard, quote, talked his way to freedom, but the prisoners kept his keys and weapon. As the tensions rise within the yard, Clapp organizes officers around the wall, alternating officers with riot guns, rifles, tear gas cannons, and shotguns. Asking for help from the Boise police, Clapp was able to use a fire truck ladder to get guards on the roof of Two House. The guards training their rifles on the north side of the shirt factory. Word of the riot spread as far east as Jerome and as far west as Weezer, pulling in not only officers from those areas but also journalists and civilian spectators. According to an Idaho Daily Statesman article by Bill A. Wheeler published on May 25th, quote, Thousands of motorists streamed past the prison's outer entrance on Highway 21, and spectators took observation points on Table Rock and other foothill vantage points overlooking the prison. Journalists then joined officers on the wall. Clapp stood on the south wall and called to the convicts with a megaphone, asking the convicts to return to their cell blocks in a single-file line. The inmates refused and began breaking glass and smashing equipment inside the shirt factory. Some inmates speak to journalists on the wall, with James Samuel Miller becoming the unofficial spokesman. He explains to the journalists' reasons for the riot, charging the prison guards with brutality, saying, quote, The bulls kick guys, beat them up, and call them dirty names. He continued that inmates were often thrown into Siberia without justification, quote, where they were forced to sleep on a cement floor with three blankets. The men don't get treated right, Miller said. Other inmates complained that they didn't get enough recreation and, perhaps most importantly, they were displeased with the grievance committee, calling them all stool pigeons. With Clapp still asking inmates to return to their cells, some men came to the windows, which they had previously smashed. What follows here is a conversation between Warden Clapp and number 7542 Roy Edward Jones, who was barricaded inside the shirt factory. Clapp. We don't want any violence and we don't want anybody to get hurt. This is the message I have for you. We have treated you fairly and want to treat you fairly in the future. We want you to go single file to the lockup. Later, after the lockup, we will feed you. You may go in groups of your own decision. Hey, you guys, quiet down in there. Clap. Dialogue unknown, but explains that leaders could state their case before Frank O'Neill, associate warden and captain of the yard, in Clap's presence. He promises a fair hearing. Fair like you've been before. Now see here, Clap. We promise that there'll be no violence, but here, you got those guys in lockup. How about that? We want to know why those guys are in lockup. This is something I'm not going to discuss with you here. My watch says 2.15. I expect an answer by 2.30. Captain Talley's been going around threatening guys. Now he's jerked some men out and put them in lockup just because some stool pigeons named them as ringleaders. I'm not going to carry on this discussion here. Okay, that's it. Get away from the windows. Telling officers with tear gas guns to hold their fire. These men are convicts, but I want to give them every chance. My last resort will be to bring them out by firing. At this time, Don Williams, Boyd Anderson, and Frank Phillips, the three members of the grievance committee, come up to clap on the wall to act as mediators. Williams spoke, quote, It's a pretty delicate situation in there, Warden. If you bring those men out of lockup, they'll settle this right now. 
Clapp refused. Williams continued, quote, They say Tally's been writing some of them some of them guys and it's gotta stop. They don't want him fired or nothing, just want them guys out of lockup. Clapp gave the committee another 15 minutes to speak with other inmates inside the building. When the committee returned, they demanded hearings and a promise that no one would be given lockup for the riot. Quote, we won't come out without a fair hearing for those boys you've got in lockup. Clapp replied that he could not promise there wouldn't be lockup until he knew the extent of the damage in the buildings. He then got back on the megaphone and asked the convicts to return to their cells, giving all the men 10 minutes to leave the building. He was met with more sounds of breaking glass, and the 10 minutes soon expired. Over the megaphone, Clapp barked tear gas firing instructions and gave the firing order at 2.55 p.m. Soon, inmates began to emerge from the northwest corner of the building, where they had set fire to clothes in the laundry room. They held wet towels to their faces to combat the effects of the gas, while some remained inside the building trying to drench the tear gas bombs with water from hoses. Many were armed, some with razors and butcher knives, others with wrecking bars, hatchets, or anything else they could find to use as a weapon. One inmate screamed, quote, Keep it up, Clap, and there won't be a guard left in the yard. Another shouted, quote, Come on down in the yard, warden, and I'll cut you in two in a minute. As the gas dispersed, some ran back into the building, while other inmates entered Forehouse, where scaffolding had been erected both inside and out. According to the Idaho Daily Statesman, quote, bars were on the windows, but somehow they had managed to set the inside scaffolding afire. By 3.30, quote, the rioters had cooled off and Clapp sent in 18 guards armed only with billy clubs. Any non-rioters were lined up single file and marched to the cell houses. Once everyone inside the yard had been locked up, the 109 inmates who'd been out in two yard were accounted for and taken to the dining hall. Journalists were admitted into the shirt factory after lockup and, quote, found it a shambles. Storage factories were wrecked and smaller machines were smashed, railings and boards ripped and broken. Shoe polish, candy, and other commissary supplies were scattered everywhere. Traces of the gas would remain for days, and those who entered then were forced out quickly. Overall, nearly 300 inmates had taken part in the riot. It had taken nearly 100 officers to quell the uprising. Damage was estimated at about $15,000, though the loss was covered by insurance. The next day, Warden Clapp abolished the inmate grievance committee. Quote, We're going back to the old system. Lock, stock, and barrel. We're starting from scratch again. Everything we tried to do has not been accepted by the prisoners or worked out properly. But you can say this. The individuals responsible for this will be punished, and they'll all go into solitary confinement. During another interview, he stated, quote, Either we are going to run the prison or the inmates are. And if the prisoners want to have a say in everything, then I might as well sign out as warden. He planned to have several hearings for particular grievous cases of inmates, likely close to the press. Fourteen inmates, all named ringleaders of the riot, were put in solitary confinement. Eleven of them part of what Clapp called the notorious orangutan gang, supposed radicals who apparently had caused several problems in the yard before, were indefinitely confined to Siberia. The 11 were as follows, as described by the Idaho Daily Statesman. James Samuel Miller, sentenced in 1949 to 25 years for armed robbery. Robert K. Merlin, sentenced in 1949 to 14 years for obtaining money under false pretenses. He previously served time in the Arizona State Prison. Merle Roxy Kirby, committed in 1947 for 14 years on a forgery charge, is a graduate of the Oregon State Prison. Donald Schoonover, sentenced in 1951 to 14 years on a forgery count, previously was an inmate of the Washington State Reformatory and Washington State Prison. 
Roy Edward Jones, sentenced to 15 years in 1949 for first-degree burglary, a former inmate of the Oregon and Washington reformatories and penitentiaries with a record for making escapes, two of them since commitment to the Idaho penitentiary. George James Hawk, sentenced in 1950 to 15 years for burglary in the night. A graduate of the Indiana State Reformatory, he will return to Indiana for further imprisonment following release here. Armand Eugene Schaefer, convicted in 1947 of assault with intent to commit rape and sentenced to 14 years, served previously in the Washington State Reformatory, Idaho Industrial Training School, and Colorado and Nevada penitentiaries, and has served previous time in the Idaho prison. Lyle Wayne Henricks, sentenced in 1951 to five years for second-degree burglary, previously served time in a Michigan reformatory. Arthur Lauren Driscoll, sentenced in 1948 to 5 to 20 years for burglary in the nighttime as a persistent violator, previously served time in the Washington State Reformatory and Oklahoma Federal Reformatory and has a prior Idaho record. Horace Everett Munger Jr. was sentenced in 1949 to 25 years for armed robbery. He previously served in San Quentin. And John Thomas McLean, committed in 1951 for five years on a conviction of issue a check without funds, Served previously in a Texas reformatory and the Utah State Prison. Whew, what a lineup. Wow. Truly. Serious. Almost all of them had previous convictions. That's crazy. (laughs) Newspapers detailed nearly every aspect of the aftermath of the riot. Idaho Governor Len Jordan said of Clapp's success in quelling the riot, quote, he was absolutely right in what he did. He handled the situation in a very satisfactory way. Apparently, wardens from 32 federal and state institutions around the country wrote Warden Clapp both commending his actions during the riot as well as recommending solutions. One federal prison warden with 30 years' experience wrote, quote, I have had considerable experience with inmate councils or committees over the past 30 years, and the results have always been discouraging and downright troublesome and even subversive. Theoretically, an inmate council could serve a constructive purpose, but practically it deteriorates rapidly into a gimme or pressure group repeatedly requesting and demanding privileges and concessions of every conceivable kind, mostly frivolous, with no thought whatsoever toward assisting the administration. We discontinued ours about two years ago, and I can truthfully say there has been an improvement in the morale of the inmate body because this abolishment removes the opportunity for agitators and malcontents to air their views and solicit backing. If such committees are elected by the inmate body, the pressure from the undesirable element causes the resignation of desirable members who catch on quick and refuse to be candidates, thus leaving the road open for incumbents with selfish interest and ulterior motives. This letter likely convinced Clapp that he was right to permanently cancel the grievance committee. As the days passed, more and more information about the riot began to spill into the newspapers. The effects of the riot were not limited to the prison. The bill for the tear gas totaled $625.16 out of taxpayers' pockets, with police superintendent A.P. Bunderson stating that 64 state police gas shells had been fired into the shirt factory, though he believed the prison had used some gas shells of their own as well. About eight shells went through the entire building, as they were found on the opposite side of the factory from where the squad had fired them. State Law Enforcement Commissioner Wayne Summers said that the riot would cause the production of Idaho's new 1953 license plates to be about five to ten weeks behind schedule while things got cleaned up and inmates started working again. 
Klopp would deal with the repercussions of the riot for several weeks after the riot ended. Starting around May 26th, several of the inmates who'd been put in Siberia because of the riot went on a hunger strike, which lasted only three days. From the Idaho Daily Statesman on May 30th, quote, Klopp said the strike by prisoners placed in solitary confinement began Monday at breakfast. He said one inmate taking part in the refusal to eat ended his siege Wednesday at supper and that by lunch Thursday, all other recalcitrants had given up on the self-imposed diet. Even by June, Clapp still had comments on the riot. A Statesman article from June 17, 1952, declared Warden Avers prison riot long planned, communist influence seen by official demands by prisoners. The second Red Scare had officially made its way into Idaho's correctional facilities. Quote, L.E. Clapp, Idaho State Penitentiary Warden, Monday asserted that the recent riot in the Idaho Penitentiary had been planned for possibly two years and that he believes there is a communistic movement back of such riots. Referring to the demands of the rioting inmates, Clapp expressed the opinion that there is a communistic movement back of such riots and that there was no real reason for demands made by convicts in the prison. Whether this is true or whether Clapp and journalists got carried away in the frantic nationwide energy of their second Red Scare is unclear. Not all of the stories that came out of the riot were somber or serious, however. On May 28th, a short article appeared in the Statesman titled, Reports of Rioting Disconcert One Convict on Way to Prison. Here it is in its entirety. Quote, Saturday's riot at the Idaho State Penitentiary had its lighter side, Warden Lou Clapp reported Tuesday. He said that one prisoner being brought in from Fremont County was kept downtown for about two hours while the men within the walls cut up. The new inmate and the officer bringing him in listened to the proceedings on the radio and, quote, the kid told the officer he didn't know what he was getting into, Clapp said. He was scared stiff, and when he came out here, he was just froze up with fear. The t- prison telephone rang, and the receptionist was asked by a worried mother, is my son still in lockup? She replied, yes, he is, to which the lady sighed with relief. Oh, thank goodness. Then he isn't mixed up in this. <laughs> That's one of my favorites, like, <laughs> news story. stories from this. So what do we learn from our first major prison riot at the Idaho State Penitentiary? First, an inmate grievance committee may not be the best idea. However, it does seem important that current inmates have a fair way to have their complaints and grievances redressed with the prison administration. Inmates, after all, are human and deserve to be treated as such. Inmates and officials must work together to find a creative solution to ensure that conditions in the prison remain livable and fair for everyone involved. Second, just as we have seen with previous riots and uprisings, do not mess with the warden. Lou Clapp will take no nonsense and he will play a major role in the next two episodes as well. He will do what has to be done to take control of the prison and do not expect anything less. He may not have been perfect, but he was an incredibly effective warden. Lastly, not everything that goes wrong in the United States in the 1950s was related to communism. The 50s was not an ideal time like everyone thinks. (laughs) Woo, right. Well, that was a nice long one. Whoa. Yeah. All sorts of stuff going on oh in there. My gosh. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. We'll catch you next week for the next right 1958. Yeah. All right. Do your own time. Do your own number. Bye. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.
and they got National Guardsmen out there with a machine gun, put that big ladder up over the wall and put it up on top of two house. They got up there with that thing. And I talked to one of the guys that led the ride several years later. I said, what stopped it? He said, that machine gun up on top of the building. <laughs> he said, who's going to ride against that thing? He said, Luke Clive just got up there and he said, well, it's all over. We're going to start firing. Boy, they stopped right now. That was the end of it.